Seeds in Space. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Scientists are beginning to understand how plants grow in space. Crews on the International Space Station have grown radishes, mustard seeds, and even chilies. A team at the University of Florida found that the plants change their cellular structure to grow in the harsh conditions of space and want to find out if they pass on those changes to the next generation. We'll speak with the team about a second generation of space seeds taking root in low Earth orbit. Then, NASA holds its first meeting on unidentified anomalous phenomenon, formerly known as UFOs. We'll hear from NPR's Jeff Brumfield about why the agency is getting involved. And a key Space Force training group, Starcom, is coming to Florida. What does that mean for the Sunshine State? That's all ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Plants are a key part of the plan for humans to live and work for a long period of time in space. They provide resources like food and serve as a reminder of the planet those astronauts call home. But space is a harsh environment for any living thing, plants included, but scientists have found that they can adapt. There have been many successful crops on the station, and astronauts have even gotten the chance to sample their space-grown produce. Now, a team of researchers from the University of Florida, Rob Furl and Annalisa Paul, want to know if those genetic adaptations made for space growth are passed down to the next generation of plants. Their latest experiment to grow second-generation space seeds launched to the station Monday. Here to talk more about the investigation and why it's important for our future in space is one of those researchers, Annalisa Paul. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, a very exciting um, your experiment has launched to space on SpaceX's CRS-28. Um, just briefly, what is this experiment's aim? What is its goal? So the experiment that launched is actually the second part of a larger experiment. And the goal of the overall experiment is to ask is whether some of the epigenetic changes that happen during spaceflight to plants, whether those changes that are part of the sort of adaptive process to hostile environments, can that be transferred to the next generation so that that subsequent generation is better adjusted to that environment? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that first experiment then. Um, tell us a bit about what you did and what you found with that first round of plants. All right. So it's complicated, but how it works <laughs> it's science. is this. <laughs> so. It is. It's complicated, but it's complicated in a good and fun way, right? So in back in the day, in an experiment we ran a couple of years ago, we found that some of the genes that are differentially expressed to spaceflight are part of the kind of toolbox that plants use to do what's called epigenetic changes. It's not a mutation. It's not something that, that causes primary changes in your DNA sequence or anything. But what it does is it kind of decorates the surface of the DNA sequence in your genome that would help keep poised as to how to respond to environmental stresses and environmental change. Now, the cool thing about epigenetics is that sometimes those changes are, are transferred to the next generation of seed. And so the seeds that then grow again in that hostile environment are better prepared to deal with that kind of stress than their parents were. And so they get primed to deal with it. So what we found, so we, so this current experiment, which is called PHO3, and my colleague Rob Farrell and I have been, been working on this for a number of years, is the first experiment that flew uh, last year sent up the parents. And so the parent seeds grew. They then set seed 
on the International Space Station. Astronauts harvested those seeds for us. The seeds came back to Earth, and then we set them up so that the launch that happened today comprises the seeds that grew on space and a comparable set of seeds that grew on Earth. And so now we're going to ask the question, are the seeds that developed in space, are they better adjusted to the spaceflight environment than the seeds that grew on Earth in the same amount of time? Take, taking a step back, though, what what did you learn when it came to, first of all, what are the conditions that are particularly challenging for these seeds in spaceflight? And then what did you learn that they adapted? Uh, how, how did they how did they adapt to those those um, uh, conditions? Space is, you got to think of spaceflight as a novel environment. It's completely outside the evolutionary experience of any terrestrial organism. There's no gravity. The, uh, the environmental conditions, even the atmospheres and stuff are, are a little challenging. It's like growing in a sort of a stressful greenhouse kind of thing. But the biggest thing, of course, is no gravity. Um, we found in a number of experiments that we've done over the years that plants respond to microgravity environment of spaceflight by turning on a bunch of different types of genes. And among those genes are things that deal with um, what we call oxidative stress, when they also do things like they change the conformation of their cell walls. We call this cell wall remodeling. They uh, induce genes for signaling for light because they don't have any gravity, so they use light as a cue. So a cool thing that they do is they'll, they'll turn on light-sensing genes in their roots, which doesn't happen on the ground, so that they can use that as a, as a cue for growing away from the light because um, they don't know where gravity is. So there's a lot of interesting tools that, that plants use to adjust to the microgravity environment. And we, we, we um, um, sample that toolbox by using patterns of gene expression, what genes are turned on and what genes are turned off in response to that environment compared to the ground controls. And that's what set the stage. We know that plants know they're in space. They all like it a lot because they have to, to do a whole bunch of different things to be comfortable in that space. And, and what we're trying to learn now is, can we, you know, predisposition plants to be better adjusted, or can we engineer plants to be better adjusted? And we do this all on the basis of these patterns of genes that are turned on and turned off in response to that environment. They get harvested on the, the space station. Those plants come back to us. We grind them up, extract their RNA and DNA, and we look at what the conditions are that are up. Uh, that space space did to them. Mm -hmm. Life finds a way, huh? <laughs> Life does. <laughs> so essentially, you're 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 looking at that. It's fascinating that the, in the roots, these light sensing cells were turned on uh -huh. to adapt to this environment where there's no gravity to tell which way the roots should grow. So you're looking to see if the plant passed that on to the next generation, and if you'll see those kind of same changes right off the bat with this new um, experiment. Am I am I getting this correctly that is pretty close and so essentially so part of the part of that metabolic toolbox that plants use to turn genes on and off is they do this um uh changes to their genome that kind of set the stage for it and so you can think about it you know they they put a pin in it i was like this is these are the genes that i got to pay attention to and so there you know how it is is you respond to something and then you might like you're doing in google maps and you find a really great way to get from point A to point B, and you think, man, I want to remember that. And so you save it to your favorites. 
And so mm-hmm. what plants do is they find like, wow, this was this was a good metabolic trick to deal with the fact that I've got no gravity. I'm going to put a pin in it. And how they do that is they do this thing that they call an epigenetic response. And so what they do, mm. that pin is a little tiny chemical group. It's a methyl group that then gets attached to the DNA in these spots where these genes reside and says, okay, I'm going to keep that spot sort of open because otherwise the genes are all kind of tightened up in this chromatin structures and things that that is hard to get access to. And so if you put a pin in it and that opens it up just a little bit. And so we can say, all right, I want to be able to access this spot fast. So I'm, I'm putting this metabolic pin in there that says, yeah, this is where I want to look to for responding to this environmental stress quickly. And so, these are the things that can get transferred to the next generation. It's the pins that get transferred and the, or the location of the pins. And what happens is, is that then the next generation is kind of primed and ready to, 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 to deal with stresses. We see this terrestrially. We see this in, you know, say like a field of plants that was um, all of a sudden subjected to salt stress or drought stress or pathogens or anything like that. You'll find that a certain percentage of, of the seeds that come from those parents that had to deal with that kind of stress are better adjusted to that kind of harsh environment than seeds from the same species that came from down the road where they didn't have the salt stress or the drought stress or something like that. And so this is what inspired us to do this experiment is that we know that the genes that are associated with epigenetic changes are induced by spaceflight. We found that out. Rob and I found that out years ago. And so Now we ask, okay, we know those genes that are associated with epigenetic tools are being expressed by space. What do they do? And how are they used? And are they beneficial to the next generation? That's that's what the PHO3 experiment is asked. Let's talk about the, the nuts and bolts of, of this experiment. So it, it launched on on uh, the cargo dragon. It will get to the station. The astronauts will unpack it. Then from there, what happens? Are, are they actually planting the seeds? Are they pre-planted? What what happens when on the station? Good, good question. Yes, they are pre-planted. They're dormant, but they're pre-planted. And so they go into this thing that's, uh, we, we call it the science carrier. And essentially it is a, um, a uh, uh, like a cookie tray, a very fancy cookie tray that uh, has all the bells and whistles to attach it to, to the plant habitat on the space station that uh, feeds it water and, and, and everything and, and nutrients and it um, is pre-planted with a bunch of Arabidopsis seeds. And those seeds, once they are inserted into the plant habitat, will get hooked up and get watered, and then they'll all sprout. Now, we planted more than 48 seeds, but what we want to do is we want to only grow exactly 48 plants because that's really all it can hold. And so the first thing that happens is that an astronaut will go in there and thin the seeds after about a week or so of growth to down to the the, the 48 best plants that are there in there. And there's, there's going to be 24 plants that are from the ground controls, and there'll be 24 plants that come from the seed that flew in space in the previous experiment. Mm-hmm. And, and, and finally, Elisa, you know, you mentioned this at the, st- at the start of, of the conversation, but, you know, obviously this is important to figuring out how to, how to prepare for, 
longer duration stays in space to be able to grow our own food. And, and these kind of things are going to be helping those future astronauts. I mean, what is the long-term goal of this research? Why does it matter? Right. So this, this matters because when we leave Earth's orbit, plants will be a part of that equation, right? Plants will be supporting us. Otherwise, we're just going in a picnic basket. So plants are so important to the exploration journey. What we, the more we know about how they work and how they can be adapted is, is, is essential. So for instance, if we know that we can, first of all, um, take some of the genes that are important to plants adapting to spaceflight, we can either engineer plants or we can breed plants or select plants that have those genes that are important for adapting to space. We can also say that if we grow a first set of generation, in space, that we can take the seeds that we grew from that, and we can be confident that the subsequent generations will be even better adapted to growing in a space flight environment than, than their parents were. And we can continue sort of tweaking plants to make them better to help support us in our exploration journeys. That was Annalisa Paul, a research professor in horticultural sciences and the director of the Interdisciplinary Center for Biotechnology Resource at the University of Florida. Still to come, NASA joins the hunt for UFOs and Florida gets Starcom. Those stories are ahead here on Are We There Yet? on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. Unidentified anomalous phenomena, formerly known as UFOs, are making headlines once again. Congressional leaders are calling on more investigations into what these things could be, and NASA is getting involved. Last week, the agency held a public meeting about its initial findings and what's ahead. Here to talk more about NASA's role in investigating UAP is Jeff Brumfield. He's the senior editor and correspondent on NPR's Science Desk. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Brendan. So, Jeff, last week NASA held uh, a UAP meeting or a meeting about UAPs. Um, first of all, what exactly is a UAP? Yeah, yeah. So this UAP is the new UFO. Um, it stands for, well, it's actually complicated. It used to stand for Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, and then Congress got involved and didn't want to limit it to things in the air. So now it's called Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. Um, and that's the title. It's particularly confusing because, of course, phenomena is plural. So I'm always confused about whether to call them UAPs or just UAP. Getting some gra um. grammar nerd here. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, the scientists go around saying UAP. We need more data on yeah. UAP. And it's like, uh, it just sounds really weird yeah. to me. It gets me confused. <laughs> well, it, it's confusing a lot of people too, but it's also interesting people, right? I mean, let, let's take a step back and, um, you know, over the past few years, we, we've seen these UAP uh, in mainstream media and, and garnering interest from the general public. What's been driving that? You know, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, I think going right back to Roswell, New Mexico, right? Like, 
there's been a strong interest in UAP in this country for a long time now. And um, I think that's that's just a running theme. I think maybe what's changed a little bit is there's so many cameras, there's so many um, people who can snap a quick video of something they see. There's so many more planes in the air, pilots, you know, looking out on the horizon and seeing weird lights that I think that there's just a lot more um, UAP sightings. And I think that that's also um, contributing to this feeling um, on the part of the government that they need to sort of come to grips with it. I guess the the other factor, of course, is geopolitical. You know, the, the Chinese spy balloon, the ultimate UAP, although it was pretty quickly identified, um, it sort of – indicates the the paranoia right now about things that we don't understand that are flying right over our heads. I think that there's a lot of of, of worry about that. So I think there's a couple of factors driving it. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, Congress got involved recently, but also NASA, as, as we talked about at the top of this conversation, NASA held a meeting last week about this. What is NASA's involvement or interest in the UAP? So from what I understand, uh, this really comes down to Bill Nelson, the NASA administrator, who felt that NASA needed to take a more direct role in the UAP question. Um, So he has actually uh, commissioned this independent panel of scientists, academics, um, astronauts, Scott Kelly's on there. Um, to to really come up with a set of recommendations for how NASA should engage on the UAP question. Um, and, and that's sort of what's driving this. How is NASA going about investigating these things? This panel is still discussing all that, obviously, but one of the, there, there are some clear uh, trends. And one of them it has to do with data and data quality. This was something that just came up over and over again. You know, f- For civilian sightings, you know, if you're taking a picture of a light in the sky with your iPhone, there's only so much that, um, you know, the scientists can glean from that. But even, you know, official sensors um, of the government aren't always good enough. So, you know, the director of uh, the Pentagon office, which is in charge of collecting all these reports of UAP, uh, a guy named Sean Kirkpatrick, Gave a, gave a talk at this meeting and pointed out that, you know, DOD sensors are really designed to look at something in order to kill it. And that's it. Like, they're not necessarily standardized. They're not designed to collect data of a certain quality. And so I think there is this desire from NASA, from the scientists here, to figure out, like, how they can standardize, organize um, categorize all this data in a way where it can be systematically studied. I think they see that as the first step. A couple other themes that came up that I thought were kind of interesting. I mean, one was a desire to really engage with the public on this issue and you know the possibility of maybe building a UAP app where people could upload things. And I think also a desire to really start to break down some of the stigma around these sightings and, and really get people comfortable, whether they're in the government or outside the government, uh, but get them comfortable with coming forward and talking about what they're seeing. Yeah, I have to imagine with, with an organization like or an agency like NASA taking this seriously, this has to change the way that the public perceives UAPs and, and UFOs and, and, you know, flying saucers, right? I mean, this gives it a little more legitimacy when an agency like NASA steps in, right? Well, I mean, let's be clear. UAP are real, right? Like, this is not 
Nobody's actually disputing that. I mean, at this meeting, um, Kirkpatrick pointed out that the DOD has about 800 UAP sightings that it's cataloged so far in this new office. And those are real things. Um, now, most of them, virtually all of them, have been identified you know, by the office and categorized. And there are things like airplanes going into land, but at a very far distance um, so that it looks funny to the viewer, um, or an optical illusion created by a lens flare in a camera, some other optical effect that has to do with the camera's optics, right, that is creating this. Or maybe a balloon. Uh, everyone loves a good balloon, and they definitely have been identified as UAP before. In fact, basically, according to Kirkpatrick, about you know, 95% of what they're being reported, they can actually identify as a real object or physical phenomenon. Um, and they can say, this is what you saw. Uh, that still leaves 5% of things that they just have no idea what they're looking at. Um, he gave an example of a metal orb hovering over a rock um, that was seen by a, a drone, a U.S. drone flying in the area, sort of zooming across the frame. They have no idea what it is, but it is something that they saw. So, um, you know, I think nobody's discounting UAP. I think the question is, are they little green men? And that's where even many of the NASA panelists uh, would be very skeptical, I think, of, of, of any claims that it was actually extraterrestrial or, or, or something out of the X-Files. So no confirmation of aliens. Yeah. <laughs> no, no aliens, right? Yeah. No confirmation of aliens. Not yet. Absolutely. Not yet, says Jeff Bromfield. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> hey, never say never. It's a big galaxy, Brendan. <laughs> well, we have been speaking with Jeff Brumfield. He's a senior editor and correspondent at NPR. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Brendan. The Space Force's Starcom headquarters is coming to Florida as early as next fall. The Air Force announced Patrick Space Force Base as the preferred location for the Space Force's Training and Readiness Command, responsible for training Space Force Guardians and developing new tactics for space-based warfighting. Here to talk more about the selection and why it's significant to the state of Florida is Frank DeBello, president of Space Florida. Frank, welcome back to the show. Happy to be with you, Brendan. Great to have you on again as well, Frank. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Um, let, let's start. Let, let's talk about Starcom. Um, big announcement from the Air Force. Uh, first of all, what is Starcom, and and why is this such a significant announcement for Florida? Starcom is the the Space Training and Readiness Command, and it exists to uh, prepare uh, combat ready forces to fight and to win in a uh, contested, uh, degraded, and operationally limited um, space domain. Uh, and they're going to achieve that uh, through uh, developing the materials and educating and training the guardians, the the uh, servicemen in Space Force. Uh, secondly, through developing what I call the warfighting doctrine, tactics, and strategies. And then third, uh, the techniques and procedures. So they're going to be ten, uh, the, the the significance of this will be the single biggest new mission in the uh, defense area, and it firmly establishes this state in the heart of the future of uh, of national security space. We were already the home to the most active and best staffed launch site uh, with a strong space operations culture, 
Um, but we're also the home of the world-recognized capital of, uh, in my mind, simulation modeling, digital domain, and gaming. And when you put these two together, they're, they're both the critical elements that are necessary to uh, uh, train any and prepare the next generation of guardians. When I say this is the single biggest uh, new mission assignment that we've received in years, I equate it to the establishment of the Eastern Test Range here in Florida. It'll be that significant. And uh, overall, I think this is a, a recognition of Florida with a strong, strong culture of the uh, commercial space um, and, and the industry that is based here. And this commercial space industry is one that uh, Space Force will become increasingly reliant on. And it's an industry that is rapidly developing and adapting new space technologies and operations thinking. It's the it's truly the ideal culture and environment for training. Frank, you, you said that the, the selection is a recognition of the aerospace industry and the simulation industry that is here within Central Florida. I have to assume that this selection and this move here will also bolster that industry for those reasons you've outlined, right? Well, absolutely true. I think the, the beneficiaries of this assignment are going to be statewide, but clearly it's not just the the Space Coast area. It'll be uh, well up into Volusia County, certainly Brevard, but the counties to the west will see a, a an influx of new companies that are coming here who will become part of this modeling simulation and digital domain capability that will be the heart of of the training regime as i say it's truly the world's or the free world's uh space uh players who are going to come here to train and and finally i mean how does this build into the the legacy of florida you mentioned that this is a significant how does this play out for the for the history of of Florida's rich heritage in in the space industry. Well, I think you know the vision we've had for Florida. Uh, first of all, we look at the whole state as the state spaceport system, um, and this further enhances the fact that all of our state is involved in, uh, in making uh, uh, and flowing the materials and uh, transiting the uh, things that are necessary for efficient space operations. Um, but the, the, the bigger picture is that we always saw Florida as the ground node for not only uh, civil space operations, but for uh, defense and national security space, and increasingly also as the ground node for the evolution of a commercial space economy in low Earth orbit and beyond. And in this next 10 years, you'll see that in a major way. We're looking, as we have, I mentioned, We've financed over $2.7 billion worth of aerospace infrastructure in the state in the last 10 years. Uh, our goal is to take that to 10 by the end of the decade. It's the role of Space Force to not only um, protect uh, and particularly Starcom to train to, to protect uh, our national assets, but also to protect that commerce, just as London did and the navies of london did in years past so we see a major role for florida in this future lots to look forward to we've been speaking with 
Frank DiBello. He's the president and CEO of Space Florida. Frank, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for joining us. Take care. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit wmfe.org space. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Our intern is Amy Diaz. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>